0: I always ask anyone when Nashville comes up, "Have you had a chance to go to a place called the Funky Griddle yet?" Um,
1: no, don't think I've even I've heard of it, but highly recommend.
0: It's like a cute little breakfast brunch kind of place. Uh, kind of has like a bed and breakfasty feel, but it's just like this little like breakfast restaurant, and they they build the griddle into the table, so you like make your oh. own pancakes, and they just sell you the toppings and stuff. But <sighs> pretty good food. It's it's a cool little spot. All right. Yeah. It's spelled like P and then the word Funky. There's like a, a silent P, I guess.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. Like <laughs> for it.
2: Today is November the twelfth, twenty twenty-one, and this is the Friendship News Hour presented to you by Bummer Dude Media. My name is Frank. His name is Alex, and today we have the distinct pleasure of being joined by a current freelance reporter, uh, former Los Angeles Times reporter from two thousand and four to two thousand fourteen, author of numerous books, including Dreamland: The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. Sam Quinones. Hey, Sam, how are you? Good. How about you? Hey, doing well. I appreciate you asking. Thanks for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. The reason that you're on our radar, uh, after all, is from your article in The Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Very detailed uh, expose into the uh, current state of methamphetamine in america so uh, we wanted to get you on we we uh, covered your article a couple of weeks ago and uh, there was a giant response on TikTok of all things with uh, current and former meth users uh, commenting on the article, facts of it, and uh, starting their own discussions. It kind of blew us away, Sam. We, we had no idea the community that that we would run into when we uh, put up that video, and uh, the response was pretty overwhelming. So uh, we reached out, and uh, glad you're here. So could you uh, let us know, how did you get started in reporting on methamphetamine in particular
1: well that story that you refer to is actually an excerpt of my next my new book oh no kidding which is called the least of us true tales of america and hope in the time of fentanyl and meth i've been covering mexican drug trafficking for a while and i lived down in mexico for 10 years methamphetamine is just the latest it's it's part of a move among uh, Mexican drug traffickers away from plant-based drugs and towards synthetic-based drugs, meaning drugs you can make in a a laboratory out of just chemicals, no plants involved. And uh, methamphetamine was really the first drug that the traffickers discovered that that they could do that with. And I was in the 90s and into the 2000s and so on. And then uh, they discovered uh, fentanyl, which is kind of a substitute for heroin Is made. Again, synthetically, it's a chemical uh, process and no plants involved, unlike heroin, which has a heroin poppy. So I've been just covering this and it's very hard if you're covering this stuff not to understand that major move uh, away from plants towards synthetics, seems to me, in Mexico. And the fact that because of that, uh that they have access to chemicals over the the world markets through through the ports that they have on the pacific coast of mexico and all that allows them to produce these drugs these synthetic drugs in quantities that are just overwhelming and, and never never before seen frankly and so that's that's how i got on to this it just was too big a story to um to avoid to to not see
2: Sure. Uh, you mentioned synthetics, and, and in your article, in the article, you reference P two P meth uh, quite often. And when uh, we were looking through the responses to our to our video, a lot of uh, responses. Brought up P2P meth as almost a, uh, a novelty. There, there was a, a, a bit of like a nostalgia to it, and, and a lot of people said, "Hey, you know that this P2P meth was back in the '90s. This doesn't exist anymore." They called it prop dope. A lot of people called it prop dope, um, but. After reading your article a couple of times, uh, I'm, you know I'm convinced that what you're saying right now is true. That that you know it's it's easier to make. It's synthetic, and I think it speaks to uh, just how low this drug is on our collective radar, right? We hear about fentanyl all the time because people are overdosing and dying on, on rapid uh, rates. And, um, you know, heroin, huge story um, in America, but but meth seems to get lost in the mix.
1: Why, why do you think that is? Um, I think because no one, very few people actually overdose and die on methamphetamine. It's not something you die from. Uh, generally, there are ways, I mean, you can have a heart attack and that kind of thing, but, um, but generally, it's certainly not as commonly as you would on an opioid like fentanyl or heroin. And so I think that that is really one reason that it's, uh, it, it, if you don't die on it it, it, it just doesn't register as much with the public, I think. But
2: no less of an effect on drug users in general, right? Like it, it is as sure. devastating as these other drugs that can kill you
1: instantaneously. Is that correct? Oh, of course. Yes. I think that's what my reporting shows for this next book, The Least of Us. It's that you have this new wave, it's really the old way. The new way is actually an old way of making methamphetamine with with phenyl-2-propanone. That's where the prop dope comes from. Phenyl-2-propanone, also known as P2P, There's a variety of ways of making, let me put it this way, the the precursor P2P, uh, a variety of ways of making that all using chemicals that are legal, industrial, and and many of them very toxic. And so this new way has taken over as the Mexican government has made it very, very difficult to get your hands on Uh, the former precursor that was really actually far more efficient, much, much easier way of making methamphetamine was with, with a chemical called ephedrine it's uh, so a decongestant planted in pseudofed pills that kind of thing um, you would really prefer to make methamphetamine with uh, ephedrine but it's not easy to get anymore in mexico and so now they're using um these other these other methods and all with the precursor p2p now um it, it's it, along with that it seems to it has has come is a comp- all of that, as, as the, they've produced all the, the this enormous quantity of dope, all, uh, uh, and it's really all across the country now. For the first time ever, we really have methamphetamine in every part of the United States. Uh, along with that, has been a, it's been accompanied by very severe, rapid onset symptoms of, of mental illness, symptoms of schizophrenia, really, paranoia, uh, hallucinations, uh, grave, serious delusions, inability to really get along with people. And the ephedrine method was kind of a party drug. You want to be around other people. This mm-hmm. one is very, very different. It's not the same thing. And it it sends people into the kind of their shell. And so very quickly also, people are homeless. And then very quickly also, I would say, and this, this I think explains, um, uh, it goes a long way to explaining why we have uh, are all the tent encampments that we have mm. around the country, primarily on the Western United States, but also in many other parts of the country? And that's because people who are uh, grown um, delusional and mentally ill due to methamphetamine can't be in houses, can't be in apartments. So they're on the street, but they also cannot really be in homeless shelters because those shelters are even more scary then the apartments are filled with people that everyone you know you think you're being surrounded by people all of them trying to kill you and it's kind of very scary uh paranoia um and so uh, the the tent is actually the perfect place for for you to stay good if you were because it's like a little pod you know it's your own little self-contained universe and you're all alone you don't you're you're kind of away from all these people plus a encampment works Also, you're not just off in the middle of nowhere because the 10 encampment is filled with the drugs that you you need and you want and you're addicted to.
0: Now, Sam, when you're putting together your books, this article, are you going and and like spending time in these encampments, talking to people, interviewing them? You know, how how are you putting some of this together?
1: Yes, that's a good question. But I I would say that probably more effective than that, because those people are, are virtually Incapable of talking. Sure. I mean, uh, in, in a, in a rational way. Far, far more effective. And, and efficient and a good, better way of getting real uh, 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 usable information is to talk with people who are in recovery from that. Uh, yeah. Who have left that world, number one. Sure. Um, and I've talked to several of those um, uh, people who work those areas police officers, uh, drug counselors, uh, treatment uh, folks of all kinds. Th- that is really where you get better information because the fact is that, that talking with those folks is a very scary thing for them and frequently they're speaking in ways that you that don't make any sense anyway and so it's not you know it's it's a uh, it's a scary thing to, to behold you know people just kind of shrieking and walking around naked and babbling and you know that right. kind of thing it's not it's it, you, you can't really get much information off. the other thing that's important that's connected to to what I just said is that it's also very difficult to get these folks into treatment and the reason for that is the same thing because d- drug recovery, drug treatment requires a connection, a human connection one-on-one. The problem is if you are a drug counselor trying to connect with a person who's addicted to this stuff, it's very difficult to make, make any connection because that person is speaking to you again in this thing that's called word salad, which is just a big jumble and you have no idea what they're talking about. And so it's very, very difficult for drug counselors. To, it takes a while that people need to detox for weeks And sometimes, even then, the, the effects aren't really, don't really leave. I mean, I met several folks, talked to several folks like that, where, you know, one guy was still trying to figure out how to talk. Goodness. Wow. Literally, he had kind of lost the ability to talk. And I'm not sure if he actually meant that literally. At one point, he meant it literally. And then another point, he was saying, it's not like I forgot to talk. It's like, I forgot how to insert myself in a conversation. Uh... I would think so deeply about what I was trying to say. And was that the right thing? And I was very paranoid about seeming like an idiot. And then after a while, it would be pointless to say what he was going to say because the moment had passed. It, it's kind of hard to say. It's, it, it's, 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 And it's also, I would say, very different for each each person, but I would say the common denominator is this rapid onset of par- symptoms of, of paranoia, uh, of schizophrenia, paranoia, hallucinations, and stuff st- stuff like that, which is not the case, okay? Very definitely not the case with ephedrine meth. Ephedrine meth would keep you up for several days, and after the fourth day or so, you would begin to see these kind of what's known as shadow people, you think there's a person over here, you turn, the person's gone. Mm-hmm. But that kind of thing, but that really had more to do with sleep deprivation. No meth is good for you. Okay, let me just make that clear, clear that that point. No meth is good for you. But also it's it's but the federal the meth was, was definitely not this one where you went into your shell, both mentally, as well as physically in the tent. And, and, and so all of that means that, that um, says to me, and I think says to a lot of people that, that this is a very different situation. This is not the stuff that was on the street, particularly the Western United States when a federal month was big. It's not the same, not the same stuff. It's a very different situation, and it creates a lot of different social problems. Homelessness, mental illness, difficulty in treatment. All that kind of stuff is part of the mix.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, a lot of responses that we had gotten on TikTok said said that they kind of poo-pooed what we were saying. Like, no, it doesn't have much to do with the drug itself, but it has to do with you staying up for days on end and then you start to hallucinate and lose your mind a little bit. But it's, I mean, it seems to me that, that those folks aren't really privy to this other uh, type of drug that's out there that, that you said is it got this rapid, rapid onset mental illness.
1: Yes, I've spoken with many people who've within hours, um, immediately, you know, within a day, something like that. Sure. Staying up for days will create, play havoc on your brain. There's no doubt about it. I'm sure that that's part of the mix. After a while, after day, people are up for several days, that's also part of it. But that does not explain what's going on with this with this drug. I'm afraid um, this drug, uh, the way it's made, or something about it. Here's the other thing I want to make sure that everyone knows. I'm not a neuroscience. I'm not. I don't. I don't spend. I don't study uh, the the effects of uh, drugs of abuse on the brain. There are scientists who do that. They are qualified to understand this in a way that. I probably uh, am not. There are no journal studies, no mice or rat studies about this at all. This is just street reporting. This is talking to people who have been around this for a long time, recognizing there was a major shift in how it was made. And when that shift took place, people were reporting in all all the places I actually went to or called. Uh, it's the same story. It's, it's the same story. So what exactly is going on is a great question. And I don't I'm not saying I know, what I'm saying is that this form of methamphetamine made this way seems to be accompanied very routinely, very quickly by this rapid onset of symptoms of schizophrenia. Um, and and creating a lot of problems when it, when it when it does foremost among those mental illness and and the homeless encampments that we're seeing uh in many parts of the country
2: yeah sure and and i want to touch on that uh a little bit more obviously uh correlation is not causation but in your article you you did draw a straight line connection between general availability of this drug and the enormous population of homeless and, and not just homeless but you mentioned it tent encampments I, i'm based out of san diego so I see this all the time. I just traveled from Sacramento, and it is almost as bad in Sacramento. Um, if you go anywhere in Oakland, along the the harbor in Berkeley, it uh, it it's it's so bad you almost can't fathom it. So for folks out there who are listening who aren't on the West Coast, you, you know it it's as serious of a problem as as it's ever been. And you mentioned in in that in that article that the folks in, in leadership of these of these cities are trying to shield that problem from being a quote-unquote drug problem. And the focus is shift is, has tried to shift towards general uh, housing prices or any other thing to not cause a stigma of drug users with homelessness. Why do, you, why do you think that we do that? Because I recognize that here in San Diego as well. Why can't we call out this issue as it is and then attempt to fix it?
1: Yeah, it's a a great question, and I think there is a lot of that behind what's going on. Um, now, you know, let, let's be clear too. Uh, there's very definitely in California and many other places a real issue with the high cost of housing. There's just no doubt about that. Okay. That does not mean though that that is, that that has any, I don't think that that really has much to do with the, the kind of homelessness we're talking about. Again, there's not just one kind of homelessness. There are many kinds, many, many motivations behind home, but the tent encampment homelessness. Uh, I think a major, major driver of that is this this methamphetamine now coming out and in quantities that are that are boggle the mind. So they cover the United States with methamphetamine and the price drops. So they make so much of it that they can cover from L.A. to Vermont and still the price drops. Wow. It's not like the price is going higher. It's going lower. It's dropped by 80 percent in many, many areas. Um, and that's the other thing. It's not just San Diego. It's not just Seattle, San Francisco, L.A. It is rural Indiana. Uh, central uh, rural Oregon, small towns, West Virginia, et cetera. It's it's just Boston. It's like all over this tent encampment problem, this homeless problem. And it all arrives just at the same time um, as the as the meth. You're right. There is a correlation is not causation. On the other hand, it does mean something. And I, I what what I was trying to do is really, well, first of all, tell a story that nobody had told, break a story um, that nobody had told. And I'm doing that with my book, The Least of Us. I just, I couldn't believe it. I mean, this would be a story that really ought to be a have been broken by a newspaper reporter. Or a radio, local folks, someone who's stepping over this problem every day, and yet nobody has. It, it seems to me a bizarre situation, not necessarily a healthy one, because if, if 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 you're relying on book reporters who take three, four years to finish a book, that's that doesn't mean much for the for the functioning of the fifth estate. You know, you got you got to really wonder if uh, what's what's gone wrong here. But I do believe, as you said, Frank, that this is connected to a kind of a woke sensibility, a politically correct sensibility that says we must never talk about people who could who we perceive to be victims in a bad way well that's fine except for that when it means that you avoid the true causes or certainly a major major driver of of this and you are then skewing the conversation so you can really never find a policy solution that works or begins to work let's put it that way because there's lots of solutions that need to be tried on this um this is uh, this but this it's very difficult to imagine anything happening without people actually getting uh detoxed off methamphetamine the idea that you would give a person who's in florid psychosis a house hmm. um and think that that would work is is beyond reason I, yeah. I think it's crazy it's first comes detox first comes detox and that can take weeks, sometimes months in this case, not like heroin where it's two, three weeks and you're done, you're out, it's out of your system. You know, here it's a whole lot different. It, it the, the the mental scars, the mental shredding that goes on is is severe, particularly among people who've used it a lot and li- lived on the street for a good long time. We're seeing a lot of those people now.
2: Yeah, sure. And outside of purging the drug from one system, they first have to come to a realization in their own head that they actually need help. Well, I don't
1: think that's going to happen. No. What I think needs to happen is we need to be in the in in the in the in the kind of in the business, you might say, of. Removing these folks from the street. There's an, there's the idea that that you would come to some uh, idea that I'm ready for treatment when you are screaming at demons that no one else sees. Yeah. I just think that's that's an unreal, completely unrealistic, and and what, what what that actually means is people will stay on the street until they die. Yeah. Okay. Something happens. They hit, get hit by a car. They, they get some disease. Some, something like that will happen. I think it's absolutely incumbent upon us now to say, we'll understand that these folks will always be homeless until as long as they use this kind of dope. It seems very clear to me that this is this is a a, a very strong connection, if not causation, as you say. Um, And and it seems to me that that if if we don't do that, we're going to have these encampments and we're going to have people strung out, tormented, horribly tormented. The idea, the the, the part, part of this problem is that is that we this is happening. Just as um, we've got these ideas of the, the criminal justice, re- about criminal justice reform, so that police now can no longer, should no longer, ought not any longer, make arrests for small level drug busts uh, and and you know uh, syringes or uh, stolen property or stuff that really sure. is a, a, a evidence of a much larger addiction problem that we should not make. And and the idea that we should not arrest people, we should be arresting people the, uh, like that to then send them to prison. I do believe is wrong. It's not. It doesn't help. It's it's a waste of money. Yeah. But that doesn't mean there still is an effect of arresting. People and getting them off the street and beginning that detox. That is the key thing. People cannot survive, will not survive. They will go crazy. They'll then get some meth with fentanyl in it and die. Whatever it is, there's go- there is nothing good. It is nothing compassionate, nothing kind or merciful by leaving people on the street, hmm. particularly in this, in this, uh, um, in this con- and with the drugs circulating and the quantities and the potency that they, that we've, we know that they are.
2: Yeah, thanks for saying that. I mean when we, when we first talked about this article, Alex and I we, we posed that question mm-hmm. to ourselves, what the heck do we do? you know Because l- l- like you I, I don't I don't necessarily think that you know drug use of this kind um, makes you a criminal right? And, and, and I think that's where um, the, the mind goes when you say, hey, we're going to you know, crack down on this drug use by arresting the users and then sending them to jail, and then they don't get the help they need, and they just go back out on the street, and it's a vicious cycle. But gosh, we have to start somewhere, right? And, and if we're not going to
1: do anything, then like you said, there's nothing merciful about that whatsoever. The, the least of us, the, my next, my, my book that's just out that has all this story in there. Again, that Atlantic piece was kind of a distillation of, of what I've written in, in, in the book. I go into uh, another thing I think it is, is incumbent upon us to do, and that is, uh, rethink jail. And, uh, this is happening in many parts of uh, the country, not so much in California, I don't think, but certainly in the areas most affected by the opioid epidemic, there's a number of places I can point you to where they're really trying to rethink jail. So jail up to now, traditionally, all across the country for decades, has been a place where you just send people to vegetate. They just sit, Mm. right? They watch TV, Judge Judy or something like that, you know, Real Housewives or some nonsense, and they sit around uh, playing poker and comparing criminal notes, and that's about it, Right. Um, So the idea, though, now is really taking hold, and I think it's a very healthy one, a very wise one, is that we now need to make jail a place of recovery. And the way you do that is separating out a pod or two or three, but generally starts with one. And you make that a pod where uh, people opt in, the inmates opt into it, so they're volunteering, and they make their bed every morning. There's no TV watching all day long. You are working on your recovery. There's classes in criminal addictive thinking. There's um, GED classes. There's twelve uh, step meetings run by the by the cell by the folks in the cell in the pod. Um, these these are being tried in Ohio and Kentucky. Uh, Virginia, West Virginia. There's various places and there's new ones trying all the time. And as, again, as I said, in, in the least of us, there's three uh, chapters on one co- county in Kentucky that's doing just this. What that means is that you can actually provide a place for people who are in jail because of some addiction problem because they stole some stuff, but it really is about addiction while they're there. And they can begin the recovery process. This is not, again, a, um, a purely criminal issue. There's, there's, there's a very clear connection to whatever addiction they, they're, they're suffering from. And so, I think that as, as these drugs have taken hold, fentanyl and methamphetamine, they've made tra- changing jail more important than ever. We need to find a way of using jail to be a place where recovery can begin. And it's being tried. It's just I'm not sure if it's being tried in California.
0: Do you think that like what Oregon's doing, where they decriminalized, you know, all drugs and the or the possession of drugs, do you think that hurts or helps this situation?
1: I think it totally hurts the situation. Yeah. Why would you that's a death sentence. Right. That is a death sentence to me. There's nobody who lasts on the street where, uh, as a fentanyl user. And everybody's a fentanyl user now because they're mixing it into everything. Mm. Uh, you don't last on the street. It's not like heroin where you can live for 10, 20, 30 years. I've met people do, do this uh, 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 using using heroin. Fentanyl will kill you. You will die. It is an absolute death sentence to be left on the street while these are the drugs that are being that are out there and particularly in such ghastly uh, quantities and potency. So to me, it feels like to leave people out there, what, what's what's happened, it's a fascinating thing. Our thinking on what to do about addiction and drugs, uh, decriminalization has been around for years, decades. Yeah, And that's fine. And there may well have been, there may very well have been a time when, when those ideas uh, were much more appropriate, were really uh, than, than what we were trying at the time. I, um, I, I would uh, easily go along with that um the problem is the drugs changed right the drugs are now produced in such scary quantities such low prices such prevalence that it 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 makes us rethink. It forces us to rethink ideas that we've long held. The problem is our thinking has not changed. What the drugs have, and so the the thinking has not changed with regard to decriminalization. That's an idea that's been around for a while. But the the drugs are now deadly, and so you can't. I mean, leaving people on the street is a death sentence right now. Okay. Yeah. I just there's there's no pretty way to say that.
0: Now, do you find that there's been in in your research like an effective way? That people are communicating, or you know, breaking into the minds of these these people that are addicted on the street and br- getting them to you know decide
1: for themselves that they need to get treatment. No, that doesn't. I mean, that happens in some cases. There's a few, but I interviewed um, one guy I spent a lot of time with. is a guy named Eric Barrera, who was a homeless outreach coordinator for the for the uh, for a nonprofit dealing with veterans. He was a ex marine. Mm-hmm. He used methamphetamine for many years. And um, was fine. I mean, not fine. <laughs> not fine. But he, you know, he wasn't he, he, you know, it was a party drug. He was he was holding on to his life, kind of, you know, and then he was one of the first the first person I've ever met who took this new who used this new meth. Is Eric Barrera in 2009 in Southern California, Temecula? You know, very quickly went out of his went out of his uh, uh, went out of his mind, and he's. Nah. When I met him, he was outreaching to a tent encampments, and he said, "You know, that what's scary about it is everybody, uh, all the people I run into in these tent encampments." They all are suffering from the same form of degradation, hmm. uh, mental degradation and decomposition and Ill- mental illness that I was. I see I see myself in them all the time. It's a daily thing, he said. And and getting them to treatment, it's like almost impossible, he said. It's a very, very, very hard thing because they are, even when they're detoxed, here's the other thing, that even when you're detoxed off this stuff, it you're not necessarily happy because you're still dealing with the consequences and you're still seeing the paranoia. I was talking with a fellow recently uh, who runs a, a treatment center. He says, the thing about it is I, I met, I know people who've uh, a friend of mine, he told me been off this stuff for two years and still every black car he sees go by and say, sure, it's the FBI coming for him." Oh, you know, geez. that kind of thing. Wow. And so it's, it's, you're not happy the the problem is that the the drug is so damaging to the brain that you're really not happy so it's very easy to go back to the drug you know
2: yeah absolutely so so if I, if i'm hearing you correct we 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 still need to maintain some sort of maybe not criminality but but but, but certainly a illegality uh, with these drugs right it, it 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 is not okay as a society uh, that that we use these drugs and also we have some sort of responsibility to save these people from themselves in, right. in that you know we we do pick them up and you know we do book them but also we cannot continue to treat them as if they were a violent
1: criminal or some petty thief no, because that's that's why I say that's why jail is so important to change. You know, um, there is a place for violent people in jail. Of course, that's where they, they should be. But just letting people go is not a benefit. You have to understand. I mean, it seems to me that that people don't, aren't understanding the effects of drugs of abuse on the brain. The drugs of abuse on the, on the brain do damaging things and and revert eons of evolution. We evolved to to have our brains tell us to uh, 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 reward us with good feelings when we had sex and ate, and uh, and tr- on drugs of abuse. People don't, you know, uh, mm-hmm. they they are they're all alone in their own scary world. We 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 were we survived as a species because we evolved to prize community over all things. So you 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 go off on your own and, and you get eaten. Mm. You know, millennia ago, many millennia ago. Right. Well, we evolved to be community based people while the drugs of abuse and particularly these two just send you off into your own little little world. Right. And our brain has also evolved to absolutely immediately instantaneously um, uh, 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 tell us to flee when danger is near. And yet here people are living in tent and cabins, no hygiene, utter you know threats of death almost daily, every place in, in a million different ways. And the body is still telling them, and the brain is still telling them to get more dope because the dope has taken over the brain, hijacked the brain, okay? Yeah. So the idea that somehow people can make a rational decision is um, I think nonsensical and flies in the face of every piece of information and every observation we could possibly make about, about homelessness and drug addiction today, it seems to me. I think we need to use the the leverage that we have to combat that extraordinary power that drugs yeah. have over our brains. And and part of that is criminal justice, part of that is criminal justice charges, but I do believe it begins with detoxing. People, people need to kind of get off the crap and then begin to see their lives in a more rational way and then repair can begin.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well said. Without giving away everything in your new book, what what sort of um, what sort of results have these Midwestern jails seen in their separation of these of these inmates?
1: Well, I think you know, good and bad. We're talking about this, the central nervous system of the brain, which is a very very complicated organ and and a complex system. Um, I would say that that it's they're not panaceas. That's not the point that they solve everything. Rather, they are an approach. They're the beginning of a community approach to addiction that will then involve changes on the outside too because not just in the in, in jail that's going to help you it's what happens outside certainly what services what housing what what ability to get a continuum of care that right. you're out what a continuum of care is commonplace in medicine I'm a heart attack patient continuum of care means I see my my doctor every uh, six months it, it means I take these pills it means I do exercise all that kind of stuff. Continuum care with addiction is: can we uh, try and find help people get their driver's license back, pay their traffic fines, pay their probation and child support, uh, get clothes, get jobs, get sober, get sober living situations, and make those sober living situations really sober living situations and not just ostensibly sober. All of this is part of the continuum of care, um, and I think all of that has to happen. I think jail is part of, it, but but it's a part of a community based. We up to now we've really not have found ways of of putting um, the the community to work or the community services, uh, making them available in the ways that they should for a lot of people once they're sober and a few months down the road. So it's all part of a larger approach. Um, It does. It has to use criminal justice. In fact, criminal justice and supply interdiction are essential um prevention is absolutely probably the most important of all there's a lot of things that need to work this is just one aspect of it but i do believe that jail up to now has been a real um, anchor around our neck it's really not been a good thing um it, no no good stuff happens in the jails the way they're traditionally run so rethinking these jails Thinking that maybe this is a moment for, for, to create some, some, some inner um, uh, reflection on the part of folks who've been on the street. I think that's, that's a very good thing. Turns out that they're actually cleaner and cheaper to run too, because there's not many fights and the inmates do the own, the cleaning and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's actually a a win-win all the way around. Um, I'm just bringing it up because, as a, as a, as as one approach of many that need to be uh, thought out.
2: Absolutely. When we first were um, alerted to this, to this article in the Atlantic. Um, I think we were both sort of taking it back because we weren't aware of the severity of, of the problem. And then as, as time went on, I, I was a little bit I was a little bit shocked to see that this wasn't a bigger deal that I wasn't hearing more about. it. Have you been disappointed with the response to, to this article coming out in the Atlantic?
1: Not not the response to my article no. I would say I was disappointed that no one had broken the story before me without yeah. a doubt. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. this is everywhere. You see it everywhere. The supplies are clear. There's just no doubting that. The, the and so no, I, I was pretty happy. The the response was what I In fact, many people people wrote to me saying, you know, yeah, I work in a in a clinic in a major West Coast city. And half half a a, a a psych ward, basically a psych clinic, and half of our our customer, our clients, are are mentally ill on 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 methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I I hear this all. Uh, I mean, I th- the, the, I thought the response was great, and it's being used in uh, city discussions over this. That's what should have happened like five years ago, man. It just it just boggles the mind that it, it took a book writer. To break that story, to me, that's the that's a scary thing. It should have been a newspaper reporter, a radio reporter who lives in that town, who lives in one of these towns that might be affected. Instead, it seems to me that there's just this enforced, interesting little psychological games people play. But I think there's kind of like this self censorship. Mm. That people apply, like, I don't want to talk about this because it might be viewed badly, or I might be uh, impugning people who should be viewed as victims and people. So people use the term experience, people experiencing homelessness, oh, yeah, instead of saying yeah. homeless people, right? Sure. It's just a sense that that we're not going to go where the story really is is trying to take us. And I think it's a sad thing. Are you of the mind that
2: this, this is, I mean, obviously you're not the only one to have known about, but are you of the mind that somebody had the opportunity to do what you did and just didn't do it? I have no idea.
1: All I know is that nobody did it. I have no idea. Could be that people aren't aware of this change in methamphetamine. Could be, you know, newspapers are under a lot of stress, and staffing levels are low, and budgets are low, and it's very—you don't have really time to focus. All of that is part of the mix. Um, I'm quite sure, actually, but and I don't know if people had the opportunity to write this story and did not. But it seems to me that it would be very hard to spend time on on homelessness in california especially mm-hmm. but anywhere really now and not see the en- enormous effect of methamphetamine yeah. um, in this in this problem
2: no doubt that that was the biggest thing that jumped out to me is you know i i had noticed the homelessness problem just skyrocket here in in, in southern california and you know i'd been to um skid row in la before and we, we had done some work out there and and um you know, I started to see that sprout here in San Diego. Um, and then, you know, with trips to the Bay Area and San Francisco and, and and Oakland, I just thought, man, like this is this is really getting out of hand. But it never crossed my mind that there was something out there that the public wasn't aware of
1: that was leading to this. So, Well, everyone was kind of just convinced that it had to do with the cost of housing. And my feeling is that the cost of housing affects one kind of homeless person, the the shredded safety net homeless, you know, people who who've lost a job and they have medical bills and they can't afford both the house and the medical bills, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, I think those folks are affected by the high cost of housing and that the, the thing though with those folks is frequently they have family resources to draw on and they, they can sleep on couches while they kind of get their lives back together a little bit. The folks who fund drug use, or I have to say the other thing, what often happens, I think too, is people are homeless for one reason and the meth is so prevalent when they get to the street that they become, they stay there because of the methamphetamine. That's another thing. I mean, for example, in California, you know, we have... Um, very I would say draconian laws about where uh sex offenders can live. And frequently sex offenders cannot find places to live and end up on the on the street. Not a good place for a sex offender mm-hmm. to be. But um, you know, that's another kind of homelessness. There are many kinds of homelessness. It's important to understand um that it's a very complicated thing with everybody's got their own story. But I think the Tent and and homeless issue, I think that's largely because of this meth. Now, um, why the neuroscience of it all? Uh, I don't know and I'm, I, I just have clearly stated that in both the article and the book. It's not something that I'm trying to uh, prove conclusively conclusively and scientifically. I'll leave that up to neuroscientists and, and neuropsychologists to do the studies and, and figure out explanations for the, by the, by themselves. But there is seen it is just absolutely overwhelming the evidence that this stuff is, uh, this mental illness, schizophrenia and all that stuff is accompanied, is accompanying uh, this methamphetamine as it goes across the country.
0: I see the book uh, on Amazon right now is the number one new release uh, for criminology. That's that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, what's what's next? What's on your radar? I know I'm sure you're, you're busy promoting this book and, and doing all that. But do you have an idea for your, your next journey, your next Piece of
1: work. Uh, I, I I have a few ideas that are kind of off off this topic a bit because I've written out two books about about um, uh, heroin and drug trafficking and fentanyl now and math and all that. And so I'm kind of looking for other issues. I'm not really sure uh, just yet. Right now I'm pretty exhausted, honestly. I've been doing interviews and interviews and interviews, and and that's wonderful. It's great. Um, and it's the, the response to the book has been fantastic, but, um, figuring out what's next is I'm going to leave that maybe for six months to a year from now. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah focus no on this and then go from there.
2: Right. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I did read your book dreamland in in uh, anticipation of this, uh, interview. I, I couldn't tell you how much I enjoyed it. It was awesome. Awesome book. Thank you. Um, so, so I, I hope you don't take too much of a break. Cause I, I I'm starting to enjoy your <laughs> work quite a bit. Um,
1: I'll see I,
2: I, I'm curious what you've heard uh, uh, in, in, um, in terms of a response by uh, the United States government in, in cracking down on supply of this drug.
1: Yeah, I have not heard much. However, um, first of all, it's, yet, it's early yet. On, on the other hand, I think it's clear that the Biden administration is, is um, very, very concerned about this. They sent the Secretary of State, um, Blinken, to talk with um, the Mexican government and, and pressure the Mexican government. I would say that that's absolutely what needs to happen in, in very, very strong terms. This is an outrage. Uh, this really has the, the hallmarks to me as much as a drug addiction problem. It seems to me like a national poisoning, honestly. Mm. On the other hand, I would say one thing. And, um, and that is that, that this is a problem that we have a hand in as well. And one way the Americans don't don't understand too clearly, but but I think is absolutely the case, is that the guns that people can buy in our country are, are so easily are, are then smuggled down to Mexico. Those traffickers down there enjoy impunity to make these scandalous, outrageous quantities of these drugs because of the guns that are smuggled down. Uh, from here, I mean, mostly it's a huge quantity, percentage of the of the guns used in Mexico come from the United States, and it, and very often what those guns are used for is to enforce the impunity that the trafficking world enjoys, so they can't. Uh. Scandalous quantities of 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 these drugs, and not be bothered. So, to me, again, Mexico has its own very, very uh, endemic issues of 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 uh, of corruption and 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 uh, collaboration with the drug trafficking world, and all of that is absolutely has to be um, uh, really top of the agenda between the two countries. But I would say too that we have our own. Uh, issues to 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 recognize and and deal with and I think we need to spend a whole lot more time a whole lot more time trying to interdict those guns that are going south through the border crossings they they're, they're going through those border crossings you know yeah. and so that that's that would be one thing I think that that would rightly be the, uh, a, a you know a major priority for 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 this administration and, and others that come.
2: Absolutely. Uh, we couldn't agree more. Uh, Sam Quinones, we really appreciate your time uh, and the work that, that you do. Um, uh, really, truly, uh, you know, do, doing the Lord's work out there. And and uh, we couldn't thank you enough. His new book is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Sam Quinones, thanks for your time. We hope to do it uh, sometime soon.
1: Look forward to it, guys. Thanks very, very much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you, Sam.
0: What a great guy. He's doing some amazing stuff, man. Kind of segues perfectly into our sponsor who is doing truly amazing work as well. That is Gun Barrel Coffee. Drinking a good smooth cup of coffee is a treat all by itself, but when it helps American heroes like veterans and first responders, it is that much better. Our sponsor, Gun Barrel Coffee, is proud to donate $1 from every item purchased to veterans and first responder charities all across our great country. They offer 14 different blends and roasts, which you can get in whole bean ground or single serve pods. And right now, as a friend of our ship, you can use the promo code FNH10 to save 10% at checkout when you buy their products at gunbarrelcoffee.com. That's promo code FNH10. Gunbarrel Coffee, damn good coffee damn good cause.
2: Yeah, you betcha, man. That was great. Um, If you would like to comment on anything that you've heard today, uh, there are many avenues that you can reach us. Uh, We are on Twitter at FriendshipNH. Go ahead and drop us a DM there. Uh, We're on Instagram and TikTok. Both handles are FriendshipNewsHour. We'd like to hear from you there. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can reach us bummerdude.media at gmail.com. That's bummerdude.media at gmail.com. And please do not be shy to respond. Uh, Sam was was keen on letting us know that he was interested in what folks had to say about this interview or his book or the article or or any of it. So uh, reach out and uh, we'll see you next time.